0: So I am a huge uh, nerd. I don't know if anyone in here is nerdy, but like I am very nerdy. Uh, so like I have a three-year-old, and I feel like it's my job to indoctrinate her in the things that she needs to know. So we have been going through and watching uh, the original trilogy of Star Wars. Um, I probably shouldn't have done this one, but we uh, went over and watched the original trilogy of Jurassic Park. Things that I feel like she needed to know. So... Uh, now like our big game is we'll play with a T-Rex and chase a Bluey car and flip it and eat the characters out of the Bluey car. <laughs> <laughs> I take that as a dad win. My wife's not the biggest fan of it. But that's what we do. <laughs> but I say that because we've been watching Star Wars, and I'm a huge movie fan in general. So like if you want to talk movies, I will you may know more than me because I don't like do all like the crazy ones now. And I'm not, like, super up-to-date. But if you want to talk movies, I will gladly talk movies with you where I can. Uh, But I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And in A New Hope, we have this crazy thing. Like, it's completely crazy if you think about it logically. Like, how? mm, It's not smart. So, like, we have Princess Leia here, and she's doing her little message to Obi-Wan. Like, you're our only hope. Come save us. And what does he do? He goes and he tries to save them. But in the process of doing this, he meets this little farmer boy, right? Like, dude's a farmer, never been off his planet, doesn't really know a whole lot about anything other than farming and sand. Uh, That's all he knows about. He's not a pilot, he's not a fighter, he's not a warrior, he's not a soldier. Like, he has none of the checks you want for a hero. He's a farmer. Like, let's stress that, he is nothing but a farmer. Uh, And Obi-Wan's our only hope for the rebellion. If not, Darth Vader's going to win, and everything's all doom and gloom. So Obi-Wan finds Luke, and he's taking him along, and he's training him in the way. Very young, not ready, he's not there. Luke watches this Jedi master die at the hands of Darth Vader. And this farmer goes back, and they decide he's their only chance, and throws him in a spaceship and he, fl- I don't know if you like, watch Star Wars, I'm trying to make it not as nerdy as I can, so those who've never watched it can kinda follow me. So they throw him in the spaceship, and he's flying, and he has this little bitty hole he has to hit to save the galaxy. They put the hands to save the galaxy in a farmer. Now he wasn't the only one there to do it, and it wasn't his main objective, but that's what he's doing. This guy's flying a spaceship who was a farmer like last month, like he has no business to be in there. Their only real hope just died. But then Luke fights and he blows up the Death Star and it's all like fun, right? It seems like Luke is very unlikely in this story to be the chosen hero. Like if I'm writing a story and I want you to believe in this epic hero, in this person who's going to do wonderful and mighty things, I'm probably not going to make my first introduction to him as a farmer who's going around getting glasses of milk for his uncle. Like, that's probably not how I'm going to throw this off. But this is exactly what we see in this movie. And I think if we're honest, this is probably what we see in most of Scripture. Unlikely, unqualified farmers, maybe not always farmers, but people who shouldn't be doing the jobs calling them to do, if we're looking at it logically. If we're looking at it like, you know, I was writing this story if I was God, that's probably not who I'd have picked to do that job. But when we look at this, this I think this is exactly what we see in Paul's uh, mission trip here. His first one. Paul probably was not the likely person uh, that the new church would have picked to have been their savior, right? That's a horrible word. Uh, to be their uh, spokesperson to take the gospel to the Gentiles and the kings and Israel. He was a Pharisee. Like his job like, he had these papers on his way to go murder Christians before he's converted. When he goes blind, he goes, oh, Lord, is that you? Which makes me think he probably knew what he was doing was not right. And he was having this conviction, and it took this moment for him to actually accept that. But as we do that, this is the Paul that we're getting ready to read about in Acts 14. Unlikely. So if you're reading this, you're like, "But I'm not Paul. I couldn't do that. Great. Paul wasn't Paul to start with. Paul was on his way to kill who Paul became. So if there's a chance that you're seeing this, like, hmm, I'm thinking of someone I probably should go pray for, or I'm thinking of someone in my community to go talk to, but I don't know if that's my job. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm eloquent enough. I don't know if I know Scripture enough. I, I probably can't do it. Paul wasn't that person to start with. Now, a Paul may have knew everything about God, he was missing who God was in the last revelation of him in Christ. So as we go through this and you read that, think of, I don't know, we're going to read this at Luke Skywalker, like we're going to visit him right at the very end and talk about that. But think of it like, hmm, maybe I can be that farm boy who grew up in the desert getting my uncle milk who became this person who did great things. Maybe you can be Paul who was adamantly persecuting the church who went on to do great things. So as we read this, let's start in verse 8, Acts 14. In Lystria, a man was set and without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke, and after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw that Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gate because he intended with the crowd to offer a sacrifice. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their robes when they heard this. They rushed into the crowd shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also, just like you. We are proclaiming good news to you, that you turn from the worthless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and faithful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they say these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to him. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, drug him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And after the disciples gathered around him, he got up, went into town, and the next day he left with Barnabas. After they had preached the gospel in that town, they made many disciples. And they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. And by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed with the Lord to whom they had believed, so we talked about my daughter just a minute ago, and for those who have kids or been around babies, maybe this is very common. Uh, but she does this "huh" moment every time I ask her a question. If she's learning to do this, if she doesn't want to answer the question, but she does it all the time when she doesn't know what's going on, when she's confused, or if we uh, we're going over something that she can kind of understand but she can't fully relate like it's cognitively not making sense yet Um, she does this huh all the time so she loves uh, watching Raya and there's all these dragons in it you've never seen it and if she sees a dragon that is not from that movie she gets confused and she tries to relate it to something Uh, sometimes when we first started watching Jurassic Park as we talked about her playing she would see the T-Rex pop out and go is that Sisu's brothers and sisters? Huh? And we're going to do this huh a lot. So y'all get used to it. So as we do this, as she's trying to put things together and she's trying to plug it in, she does this huh. So you ever had those moments uh, in your life where you're like, I don't know what we're talking about and I'm going to look like a deer lost in headlights. Um, she does that a lot, but you know, I think we do that a lot all the time. Uh, I work at the college at Southwest uh, in Richlands, and I'm the sports advisor. So I use sports analogies all the time. And the problem with that, my cohort is 75% athletes. So 25% of my, ath- or my students are sometimes completely lost with my analogies. And sometimes they're lost even if they're athletes because I might use an analogy not in their sport. So sometimes these analogies are super home runs or like they're really bad strikeouts. Because if I'm not relating it to them on their terms, if I'm not making it where they can understand it, I get this Berkeley look, huh? What are you saying? So uh, as we see this thing unfold uh, with Paul doing this mission trip, and we uh, see Paul preaching the gospel, uh, we see these people who are living in that town, and their response is, huh? We know of uh, great men of renown. Like, that's what Genesis calls it it in chapter 6, right? Like, these men of renown. Like, we know of these stories of these gods over here. And we have Zeus and we have Hermes and we have this whole plethora of gods. But we don't know what you're doing. Like, this isn't what we've ever saw. We've never seen this. So they have this, huh, moment uh, as Paul first gets there. And I think you and I have probably had those moments a lot with God. And I think as we talk in this uh, age, we will see a lot of people like that. This is the first time that the gospel is preached to these pagans. Um, I like using the word pagans now. I don't think I liked using it up until about two or three months ago. Because I didn't know the proper context to always use it in. But I came to the conclusion that I have Christians and I have pagans. And I have nothing in between. Unfortunately, sometimes I have Christian pagans. Uh, and they're probably the worst, who they're Christ-like in their mind, and they think they're Christ-Christians, but they're really just pagans. And those are sometimes the hardest people to talk to. But I think we need to come to this realization, or I've come to this realization, that, man, I live in a very pagan America. I live in a very non-Christian America. And even, like, in our beloved Bible Belt, like, right, like, we're, like, in the southwest corner of Virginia, Man, we are in a paving Southwest Virginia. And this stat that I found on uh, Pew Research would say that one one-third of millennials belong to a church. That's not how many attend church that say they belong to it. And, and we know there's a lot of people who say they belong to a church and never step foot in it. One-third. And Pew Research says that we don't have enough statistics to say it, but we can promise you that Gen Z is even less. So if we look at that, we're looking at age, depending on what you look at, 45, age 40 and down, less than one-third would even say they belong to a church. That should be scary numbers in the sense of, that's pagan. That means a majority of the people that you and I are going to meet that's around our age, or that age and younger, man, they're not going to know what we talk about sometimes when we mention gospel-related terms. So we might be like Paul and Barnabas, and we might mention gospel-related terms or start talking about it, and we're going to get that look that Berkeley gives me when we see dinosaurs on the TV for the first time. Huh? What is that? I can't, like, I kind of have something that I can pull over here and plug in and kind of know what you're talking about, but I don't get it. So, like, when you and I start reading this story, we're nothing like Paul and Barnabas. Like, we're there we're a lot closer to there than we would like to think. We're a lot closer to there than maybe we realize. So as Paul and Barnabas are entering this town, and they first get there, man, the first thing they do, the first thing they do is start meeting physical needs of someone in the town. And the first question that probably has application, are we? Like, if we see people around us, if we see people— in our communities, if we see people when we're on vacation, if we see people away from here that has a physical need, an emotional need, are we meeting? it? And it's not just good enough to meet it, like Paul and Marcus go beyond that, right? But are we meeting their needs? Are we assisting the gospel, or are, are we assisting and playing our part in the gospel by serving Paul and Barnabas goes in and they see someone who has a need and they meet it. And as they're meeting it, people are amazed. Like they don't know what's going on. They are in awe and wonder of Paul and Barnabas. When God is displayed through our actions, I think scripture is clear: He will draw man to him. And sometimes we see things that are like, man, that's gonna be such a hassle. That's gonna be dirty. I think one of the reasons the church gave up on meeting needs as a whole in America is because it's hard work and it's dirty. Like, if I'm going to go help someone, I have to commit my time to it. Like, ugh. Like, I want to go home and do something else. But as Paul and Martinus is just going into town, they meet someone's need. And miraculously, God starts drawing people into him. I think you and I would have to ask this question. Do we believe if we would do our part, would God do his? And hopefully most of us would. go, yes, of course we believe that. And then I think the hard part for me is, then why don't I do my part? Like, hmm, do I really not believe God will do his part, and that's why I justify not doing it? Or do I not want to get dirty, and do I not want to commit my time to doing it? So as Paul and Barnabas are doing this, everyone sees it, and they know there's something special about them. So they're trying to like connect the dots mentally, and all they know is their worldview. They start thinking, well, we have gods. Man, they have to be our gods. And they had this prophecy that Hermes and Zeus was going to come to see them. And that's who they start thinking they are. And Paul is speaking so eloquently. that they're like, he has to be Hermes. Like, he has. Which to me, like, when I read that, I'm like, that's weird. Like, why wouldn't you cast Paul as, like, the chief god, right? Like, Zeus. But then they start thinking, Paul's speaking so eloquently. And Paul's words have such power. And Paul's words are doing something. that they start plugging in, like, we think Hermes gave a speech and communication. He has to be that. No one has, this is how I'm interpreting this, and you may interpret this different, but I'm reading this and going, these people heard Paul speak the gospel, which is the first time that they've ever heard the truth. And they're going, this guy has to be a God. Not only does he have to be a God, he spoke so eloquently, and he spoke so powerfully, that he had to be the God who created speech in general. So they start labeling him as Hermes. And i think the first thing is man you'd have to have an ego check if you're paul and barnabas right now right like all of a sudden people are going to make sacrifices to you they're throwing things at you and they have to get this thing right am i doing this for me or am i doing this for god paul and barnabas had to have that very real on the fly heart-to-heart check like hmm, do I want some food? Do I want some drink? And do I want some gold? And do I want a nice place to sleep? And do I want to be given the town and pretty much be able to do anything I want? Like, they weren't going to get, like, a key for a day and, like, the mayor's key for the day. They were going to get it for, like, a lifetime. And they had to come and have this on-the-fly check with the Holy Spirit and say, this is not what you're about. Like, you did not come here to get your needs met. You came here to meet needs." So as they're going through this, and they start to worshiping, they are doing it because they're desperate. They are desperate for this authentication that they just saw Paul do. They are desperate to see who is this that can help broken people? Who is this that can actually come to us and meet our needs? And I think we see that in the name that they call Paul. He's Hermes. No one's ever spoken like that before in our lives. And I can promise you, there's people in your life who probably no one's ever spoken to like that before. And it may be awkward, and it may be weird, and it may be like, uh, at first. And you might get some, huh, looks. But their response will like, I've never heard words so powerful. And Paul's not having any of this phrase a man. He takes it away, like he just totally puts it to the side, and he's fussing at him. But Satan's the author of confusion. So he's trying to throw in every loophole he can, every trick he can to get in right here to stop this from happening. Because the gospel is being combative and advancing. And it's going forth and conquering. So as this is happening, the gates of hell won't prevail. We know that, but they're trying to. So as you and I go out, we need to realize, hey, these are some obstacles These are some real-life things that could happen. Like, when you start doing good work, I think there's two real attacks, right? Like, those where, like, you're doing good work, I'm going to praise you for it, so you take the glory. And then the person's name that you're doing the good work in isn't going to be as powerful. Not that God stops being powerful, but all of a sudden the attention's on you. Or there's attacks where it's going to just come straight at you. I think you can probably back that up where almost everything, spiritual attacks, go in those two realms. One, hey, we're going to make a lot of this person, so they lose the name that they're fighting for. Or, hey, we're just going to attack them. And I think we see that in uh, this trip here. The first thing is, hmm, let's make much of Paul. Oh, that doesn't work? Let's kill him. Uh, I think Satan has two attacks, and those are them. They can come in many ways, but those are the two. So at first, they're trying to make much of him, and they're trying to do everything that we need. Or they're trying to meet all of those basic needs that Paul and them have. Like, hey, we're going to worship you. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And Paul's like, no, we're done. But as we see this, the gospel is being preached. Bridges are drawn. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are running in. Uh, the, not the, the Jews are running into this small town to make sure that the good works are not being taught. I think the worst thing maybe the worst thing that we see isn't that pagans will try to stop and combat the gospel that's kind of what we're used to right but all of a sudden Paul is having to have people come back his mission for the name for the same name of the same God that he's trying to, come, he's trying to proclaim and it's who Paul used to be remember how we talk about like mm, you're, you might not feel qualified the same people coming to stone Paul is who Paul was just four chapters earlier. Now a lot of time passes in that time period, but just four chapters earlier. The same people trying to stop Paul is exactly who Paul was. And they're coming in, and, and they're stoning him, and they're dirty in the water, and they're making it hard for everyone here to understand what's going on. And I think my favorite verse uh, is found in Acts 9. It says, But the Lord said to him, It's Acts 9, 15, and 16. And the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer. Now, I think if you use that verse, you say that's my favorite one, the first thought someone might have is, man, you're really narcissistic if you think you're God's chosen instrument. But that's not why. That's mine. It's not that part. It's for this reason. As Paul was chosen uh, on his way to Stone Creek, to stone Christians, as he's blinded, and God's bringing someone to uh, disciple him. This is God's words. For the Lord said to him, "This man is my chosen instrument. Take my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and the Israelites. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name." I love this verse because I start thinking, man, when when there's bumps come up in life, when when things happen that aren't pleasant, when when life gets bumpy. Who in here's had life bumpy recently? When life goes bumpy, and, and my life goes bumpy a lot of times because it's my fault, right? Like, I can't blame God for it. Like, I can't say, oh, I was doing what I was supposed to. And yeah, that's my fault most of the time. But there's few and far in between, like, where I'm doing it right, and my life gets bumpy. This is my go-to verse. Because I start thinking, man, if Paul can be stoned to death and left for dead and then come back, and Paul can be thrown in jail, and Paul can be shipwrecked, And Paul can be snake-bitten. And Paul can eventually die for the sake of the gospel. What am I really going through? What is really hitting me that hard? What is really hitting me to the point that I think I'm done? So as Paul's getting stoned and he's left out to die, or he's dead, depending on how you want to look at that, he, he comes back. Um, I think he's resurrected. I think God's like, hey, I'm not done with you. I'm going to let them. You're going you're gonna to make up for a lot of the suffering that needs to happen. But you're not done yet. So Paul comes back. And I don't know you all, but if I was stoned and left for dead, my first thing I'm doing is not running back to that town and preaching. Like, I would like to say, hey, that's me. Sign me up. But I know me. Like, I'm allergic to pain, and I'm going to avoid it when I can. <laughs> but Paul doesn't. Paul wakes up, and he goes back. And then he goes back to every other place. Like, he goes to the towns that those people are from. Like, oh, you came from Antioch to stole me? I'm going to go to Antioch and disciple your people. Oh, you came from Iconium to stole me? I'm going to go to Iconium and disciple your people. Oh, you stole me from Lystria? I'm going to go back to Lystria again and disciple those people. So... As Paul is going through this, I start thinking to my life, like, man, what am I doing? Like, what am I complaining about? Like, what has me down in the pits? Like, why am I being all Debbie Downer over here when this is Paul's life? So we're going to jump back to the uh, Luke Skywalker reference real quick. So I, I picture, this is how I would imagine Luke's mind thoughts going, as he jumps on the Millennium Falcon and they're leaving, and he just saw Obi-Wan like turn into like, the Force Ghost, and he didn't even know that was a thing, and Vader's all like, where'd you go? And he's leaving, and he gets back down, and he gets in the ship. He has to be thinking to himself, right? Like, what am I doing? I just saw the strongest person I've ever met die. Now I'm going to go charge this ship that's like, a billion times bigger than my ship and try to take it out. Like, I don't know what's going through his thought process. I don't know what's going through Paul's thought process right here. Like, I'm going to go back to the town that just stoned me and make disciples. And then I have to ask, do I not understand what Paul's doing because I'm not committed to the Great Commission? Like, am I willing to say, go, therefore, and make disciples? Do, but do I put, like, a clause in there in my interpretation? Go, there, go, therefore, and make disciples if it's convenient? Like, go, therefore, and make disciples if it's not going to hurt me? Go, therefore, and make disciples if it works out smoothly and it goes the way I have planned? Go, therefore, and make disciples, and if it doesn't work the first time, Stop. Like, I don't know. Like, let's be honest with us, with with ourselves. But as we read this, are we committed to the Great Commission and reaching our communities without clauses? Are we willing to look at this like Paul is and say, hey, I know I just got stoned, but I'm going to go right back to those guys and love on them. Hey, I know in uh, my next, he doesn't know this yet, but he knows God's told him he's going to suffer. But in his next mission trip, like, I'm going to go preach to the jailer who just beat me or watch me get beat and save him and his family and his household. Man, these prison guards who threw me on a ship and got shipwrecked and watch me get saved. I'm going to preach the gospel to him. Are we committed like Paul to the Great Commission without clauses? Like when we read those verses, I said, go there, go be my witness to the ends of the earth when it's convenient like, go be my witness when no one cuts you off in traffic on the way to the grocery store. Or is it, hey, go be my witness at all times. Go make disciples regardless. And like I can promise you, those are hard words for me to say out loud. Uh, maybe they're not hard words for you to hear. But those are hard words to say out loud. It's like, what am I doing? And then we get to read about Paul. Stolen. Left for dead or dead. Comes back and goes back to the same town. But not only does he go back to the town that stoned him, he goes to the town where the Jews who came from to disciple those Christians. So as we end on this, when we read the Great Commission, what clauses are we adding in there unintentionally? Go there and make disciples of all nations. When it's convenient. Or go there and make disciples of all nations. Period again, my favorite verse, Acts 9, 15 through 16, and the Lord said to him, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, to the kings, to Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. As uh, we close on that verse, I want to pray it over our lives. What are we willing to do for his name's sake? And are we willing to be committed to the Great Commission? Like Paul was. Those are hard words to say. Like I don't know if I to do anything like Paul did because he suffered a lot. But at the same time, in a pagan world, maybe we need more Pauls. Let's pray. Dearly, Father, uh, I just use this word and challenge us. Challenge me. Help us look at the Great Commission and, uh, use Paul's first mission trip as our, uh, prime example. What clauses, what boxes, what boundaries are we putting up on you? God, help us show that it's, uh, that our life is indebted to you and that you are a treasure. And help us, uh, forsake our well-being sometimes for your glory. Help us look more like you. Help us live in, uh, live a life more like Paul where we can say I want to put God first in all situations and trust that uh, whatever happens is his will, his plan and for his glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.